Regeneration Topic, a podcast by the Osteology Foundation. Hey all, uh, my name is Alberto Monge, I'm from Spain, and today I will be uh, very delighted to interview Professor Frank Swartz, uh, who is uh, currently uh, the head and professor of the Department of Oral Surgery and Implantology at the Center for Dentistry and Oral Medicine at the University of Frankfurt in Germany. And uh, the primary aim for this interview will be to shed light on few aspects of the already landmark publication published in 2007 by himself and several other colleagues on the comparison in between uh, ligature-induced pre-implantitis in the dog model and the comparison with naturally occurring pre-implantitis in the humans. I think that this is a very revealing publication for many aspects and we'll try today uh, to highlight some of them and to better understand which is the clinical significance and the translational information that we, that we can certainly extract from this publication. Welcome, Frank. Hi, Alberto. Hello, My what pleasure. a pleasure having you. Thank you very much for accepting the invitation and of course for spending some time with us and elucidating a few aspects on the publication uh, that uh, you and your colleagues published in 2007. Thank you, Alberto. So these are really special times um, and uh, maybe we, we should take a short moment and um, yeah, reporting on how we feel and uh, how, how we are doing. So obviously you are safe and well, yeah. You have good color, that means uh, the Spanish sun <laughs> is still burning and that's, uh, that's the, the good part, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think that something good about this lockdown is that we had a chance to certainly enrich our knowledge. And of course, you know, uh, we had the opportunity, you know, to update ourselves in, the, in literature regarding implant dentistry, periodontics, oral surgery. And that's a good thing of that, of course, because that uh, can be really translated into our patients in the daily setting that we started to see right now when we resume our clinical activity. And of course, now we are going to be even better because everything is going to be more evidence-based. Exactly. And this is, um, this is what I also did. I, I've tried to, to use the time that I, I gained all of a sudden yeah, to, um, to rethink about things, to, to start working in a different way. And I would say this is a, is a good chance, especially for, for research activities, yeah? for for, for the planning of, of new studies, yeah, to, to breaking out of our, our daily workflow. This is enriching and enlightening. And um, I'm, I'm really looking much, very much forward to, to what we might see in terms of new studies within the next or during the course of the next one to two years, yeah. This is very interesting because actually, uh, Regarding the, the article that we are supposed to discuss today, I think that uh, implant dentistry within the field of the study of biological complications, pre-implant uh, complications, really uh, your contributions have been huge in this, in this field. And of course, because the vast majority of them have really supposed 
a clinical advance uh, and we were able to really extract all the clinical significance from all your investigations. And the publication that you, that you did with, uh, with your colleagues at the University of Dusseldorf at the time being, uh, it's very interesting for, for some aspects. For those of the audience that are not very familiarized with this publication, although I hesitate that uh, they have not been seeing uh, this publication in any symposium, but uh, basically the goal for this publication was to compare the ligature-induced preimplantitis according to the model proposed by Linda years earlier compared to the naturally occurring preimplantitis that we see in our patients in the daily basis. And of course, evaluating first of all, which is the defect configuration, and hopefully we can discuss further on the clinical implications of this, and also whether this ligature-induced preimplantitis in the dog model is feasible and valid in order to study the progression of preimplantitis and also the defect morphology as we can see in the daily basis. So the first question, Frank, that I have to ask you, I think it's mandatory. What is the rationale for comparing a ligature induced preimplantitis and naturally occurring preimplantitis defects? Yeah, well, you are, you are bringing it uh, to, to the point. Um, one of my co-authors is uh, Anton Skulian on the paper. And um, of course, a little bit of historic background. Um, the study was done in a time or was initiated in a time when um, I was involved in, in studies dealing with periodontal regeneration. And uh, at that time, as you may know, is of course the fact that we have a clear approach on how we treat intrabony defects depending on the type of the defect configuration. Yeah, so you have a different approach for specific intrabony defect configurations at teeth. And um, when I looked at peri-implantitis related defects, I had to realize that we have a, a huge variation in, in the configuration and in the extension of the defect. And at the same time, I realized in the literature, not just in preclinical, but also in clinical studies that the defect itself, and today we would define it as a confounder, has not even been considered. So treatments were allocated to the different patients, but not with regards to specific defects. So the defect per se has not been defined as an inclusion criterion. And to me, this did not make any sense. So on the one hand side, we, we carefully select cases in patients that are demanding or requiring periodontal regenerative procedures. So two wall, three wall defects. And at the same time at peri-implantitis sites, we don't even care about the type of the defect. So that was the starting point of, of the whole discussion of the defect configuration. So based on that, your, uh, your, your goal at the time being was to extrapolate all the knowledge that we have in guided tissue regeneration in order to the application for guided bone regeneration or reconstructive therapy in the management of pre-implantitis. So th this brings my second question, which, which are the clinical implications or, or in other words, what is the most suitable therapeutic modality 
to be applied for the management of pre-implantitis in light or your findings or according to the defect morphology? So, well, when we look at, um, when I look at least at our research activities and the studies that we have planned after this initial publication, uh, we had introduced in the materials and methods section a, a proper description of the types of the defects that we had included in the study. And um, I'm quite happy to see that over the years, and sometimes this takes really years and years, um, I've seen that many other studies have followed this track and they at least, at least report on the type of the defect, subtracrestal or intrabony defects. So I would say the landmark characteristics of this, of this study was the implementation of the awareness that the defect may have to be considered. So that was, from my perspective, the clinical implication, irrespective of whether we choose a resective or a reconstructive approach. So that was not the primary target. So uh, based on your findings, uh, it is, is this ligature induced pre-implantitis uh, experimental model which is reproducible to a study not only defect configuration as you showed, but also onset and progression of pre-implantitis? So, well, when you, you have worked with the ligature model and uh, this is a quite challenging model. And when you place the ligatures around, it is reasonable from a biological point of view that you get this circumferential type defect. So this is exactly where you have placed the ligature. So it is, it is quite um, reasonable that you get a specific defect configuration. Um, interestingly, in the naturally occurring counterpart, you see more or less the same, I would say morphology of the defect. It's also circumferential type even though we did not place the ligature. This is what you, of course, do not do in your patients. So that means um, the, the model itself can be transferred to, to the human situation. So this is one, I would say, important factor. And the other factor is, of course, part of the discussion. It depends, of course, on the duration of this active breakdown period. So with regards to the vertical defect component. That means initially you, you may get an intrabony defect and during the disease progression, you may get more or less a subtracrestal defect component due to the disease progression. So the, the thing, this is what I would like to emphasize is that remains still open in, in, terms, of, in terms of the explanation of the disease progression uh, how do the intrabony and the subtracrestal defect components correlate during the disease progression? Do you think that actually there are confounders on that, on defect configuration in naturally occurring pre-implantitis and also in the ligature-induced pre-implantitis in the dogs, such as uh, implant design, whether we are dealing with a tissue level versus a bone level implant, implant position, or even the emergence of the prosthetic uh, component? Well, um, when you look at your data, um, you have reported on the, on the, let's say, the positioning of the implant. So what, 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 is the, what is the influence, the confounding effect of the implant positioning? And 
Um, you would agree that most of the implants are being misplaced towards the buckle rather than to the, the oral side. And uh, when you place the implant too far to the buckle, the positioning of the implant and the residual bone that stays intact at the buckle side, that means you diminish, you reduce the bone thickness to the buckle when you place it more to the buckle. Um, you may get a dehiscence type defect during the progression. So this is reasonable. I don't think that we need that much evidence to, to make this statement. This is reasonable. So the implant positioning, and this is part of your question, may be one confounder that affects at least the defect type that may occur during the disease progression. Um, of course, the implant itself, the implant design, the implant configuration may be another confounder. But when we, we, we first finish the discussion on the type of the defect, so the circumferential type, a dehiscence type component towards the buckle or to, towards the lingual might be the result from my clinical observation um, that is also influenced by the implant positioning itself. Mm -hmm. So implant positioning is a confounder. Interesting. In this sense, Frank, uh, one of your uh, findings was that, of course, ligature-induced preimplantitis in the dogs and naturally occurring preimplantitis resembled in what regards to defect configuration, but it was roughly a difference of 30%. As such, those implants uh, with preimplantitis, displaying preimplantitis in humans, 55% of them displays this uh, circumferential type defect while roughly 90% of the implants placed in the dogs where the ligature-induced preimplantitis occur displays the same type of defect. Is this certainly indicating that uh, perhaps a reconstructive approach for managing preimplantitis is more predictable in the dogs rather than in the humans? Well, um, in a dog, it is, is a a true challenge to do any reconstructive procedures. As you may know, the dogs, they are, have no compliance at all. So it is, it's really hard to, to get a predictable reconstructive um, outcome. But I would look at it from, from another angle. So the angle is, is not whether this is an animal or a, new, a human species. So the, the, the basic question for me is when it comes to reconstructive measures, it is about the containment. And the containment of the defect is of crucial importance to get a proper biological response, a bone response. And um, therefore, that was the other implication of the, the whole assessment of the defect configurations that we should limit the reconstructive approach to the contained part of the defect rather than to the non-contained which might be the suprachrestal or even the buckle or the, the oral aspect. Yeah, when there is no containment, it's rather unlikely that you will get a good bone response. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, uh, this is something that is really um, a topic of very high interest, which comes to implant surface as a contributor of uh, onset and progression. But also, do you think it's playing a role on defect configuration? What do you mean? The well, the defect morphology, whether it can vary according to the implant surface of the implant where pre-implantitis is occurring. 
So you are you're questioning or the, the question relates to the, the, the fact that the implant surface itself may also affect the, the configuration or the type of the defect? Right, not only in what regards to the defect configuration, but also in the yeah. severity. Well, the severity might be a consequence of the inability to clean the surface, yeah? So, well, of course, we have many data indicating that some surfaces are worse than others. Um, but the, the, the point is um, not from the perspective of choosing a proper surface, it is just about cleansability. So when you have a good chance to clean even the worst surface on the market, it might be manageable, but that's the limitation. And the limitation is the cleansability. So I look at it from, from the other perspective, mm -hmm. from the perspective of cleansability and accessibility. Great. Frank, uh, you have uh, described that one of the clinical implications from your findings is the fact that it can certainly define the therapeutic modality according to defect morphology, whether we are dealing with a contained defect and we can apply reconstructive therapy or whether we have to choose for resective approach in those areas with a supercrystal component. Is there any clinical sign that can certainly lead you to uh, figure out which kind of defect configuration and that can help you in anticipating the therapeutic modality to efficiently resolve pre-implantitis? Well, this is the point where we can either make an evidence-based statement or I would say a statement um, from the clinical perspective. So as a clinician, and this is uh, how I treat my patients, and we are, we are dealing with many, many patients suffering from peri-implantitis. So roughly about 400 patients per year are undergoing reconstructive measures in our department. Um, for the, the intrabony defect itself, so without any, let's say, um, reasonable subtracrestal component, we, we, we just go for a reconstructive approach. So we, we decontaminate and we fill up the intrabony defect. And for me, this is um, from the biological perspective, this is what we have discussed, the containment, it's the best environment, but also from the clinical outcome. Um, these are the defects that are very likely to be solved in, in a way that we get the disease resolution, how we define it today. Um, when you ask me as, as a scientist, I would make the statement, we do not know whether the reconstructive approach is superior to, to open debridement or any other type of a treatment procedure. Yeah, but this is always difficult. That means the scientific statement is based on a weak on a weak basis of available studies, whereas the clinical, let's say the clinical experience is superior in a way that you have treated hundreds of patients and you see the true outcome. Your uh, clinical experience is enough robust given the amount of implants that you deal of pre-implantitis in the yearly basis in order to uh, well understand them and of course uh, 
uh, understand that uh, the information that you are providing us is of, you know, very, very helpful. In light of that, Frank, I, I have to ask you, uh, how do you approach in your daily basis in order to map out defect configuration prior to the therapy of pre-implantary? Do you do any bone sounding? Do you do uh, combing CT? Do you uh, know how to interpret the radiographic findings based only on a periapical x-ray? And how reliable are these to be used in the daily setting? Yeah, it is. This is a very good question. So for, for the usage of a cone beam CT scan, so you reduce the volume that you, you just target the implant site that you really require to see. Um, I would say the data on the one hand side, but also the clinical observation is that you get a very nice and a clear depiction of the defect. So you have a quite low amount of scattering and beam hardening artifacts when you are using current or the latest generations of cone beam CT scans. But um, at the same time, I would say it is, it, is, it is not indicated to use a CBCT scan prior to this kind of surgery. So we always want to reduce the radiation that we expose our patients to. That's one reason. In Germany, we are quite strict when it comes to the radiation um, uh, management. Um, the other thing is that I do not see any clear advantage. So we approach all peri-implantitis lesions by means of surgical interventions in the second step. So all of them. So I will open the flap, I will see the defect anyhow. That means for me, the moment of truth comes when I remove the granulation tissue and I see the defect in front of mine. And um, it's nice to see it in advance on the cone beam CT, but I wouldn't say that this is a standard and it shouldn't be a standard. Great, that's, uh, that's good to know, of course, but uh, you know, it's always good to uh, kind of anticipating the outcome. And uh, we know that there are certain uh, indicators of success, indicators of failure, of course, uh, which are gonna draw our prognosis and uh, I think that uh, we, can, we can certainly take advantage of this situation to ask you on the decision-making, whether you consider a therapeutic modality as predictable under which conditions or situations, given anatomical defect configuration, implant position, emergence profile, which are, which are the elements that you really consider in order to draw the adequate prognosis and which is the threshold that you set in order to define that an implant is hopeless and therefore it has to be removed as soon as possible. Yeah, Alberto, that's, that's a, very good, um, a very good point that we can discuss even further. So um, it, it doesn't depend, and I'm, I'm really talking about many, many patients that I've, I've treated, it doesn't depend on my judgment. So the patient comes to our clinic with a clear, with a clear need and a wish. And the wish is they want to keep the implant. They have been before in several clinics or in several offices, and they get in many, most of them, the, almost the same advice. Take it out and do it again. And this is what the patients do not want to, to hear. They want to keep their implants. 
And therefore, that's the basic requirement to fulfill the wish of the patient. And uh, honestly saying, I could show you many cases where it was much easier to retain or to keep even a so-called hopeless implant rather than remove it. We build the bone, reconstruct the soft tissue, contour, and do it again. This is by far more difficult. So the only, the only indication where we, we do not follow our own surgical procedures is when we have lost a significant amount of bone leading to, let's say, a bone loss of about 70, 80%. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you just pointed out and is the fact that perhaps over than a decade ago, we didn't know about this tsunami of biological complications and therefore probably we were not warning patients on, first of all, the likelihood of failure or pre-implantitis, and secondly, on all the indicators that we know now that they are linked to biological complications. So I think that this, is, this, uh, this was a great uh, opportunity, uh, Frank, to have your perspective, not only in your publication, but also in the management of this very complex situation. I want to thank you once again uh, for this uh, fantastic opportunity. I'm sure that the audience uh, were very happy to hear your thoughts and your perspective. I want to thank you all for attending to this online interview, and I would like to uh, invite you to uh, check this interview on the box www.osteology.org and I thank you again Frank, I thank the organization of Osteology and I look forward for many more interviews like this one. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you Alberto. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye Frank. Pleasure. Bye-bye.